Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Before we get started, we have just a few housekeeping items to cover. Today is the last episode of part one of season two. We'll be taking a little break so we can prep the second half of season two, but don't worry, we'll be back on March 24th with five more cases. Okay, let's get into today's episode. In the summer of 1996, 34-year-old Susie Larson, a graphic designer, should have been happily finalizing details of her wedding to her soon-to-be husband, Keith Hibbley. Instead, two and a half weeks before the couple was set to marry, Susie went missing. And then, on September 9th, 1996, Susie's naked and decomposed body was found wedged beneath a log near the edge of Shampooey Park in Newburgh, Oregon. Instead of celebrating the marriage of their daughter and sister, Susie's family buried her on what would have been her wedding day. Who killed Susie Larson and why? Susie was a hardworking and loving woman with a happy disposition and a bright future ahead of her. She met her fiancé Keith when the two were both living in California working for Mattel. Susie worked for the Barbie side of Mattel, while Keith worked on the Hot Wheels side. It was a little bit unclear to me from everything I read, but it seemed like Keith was still living in California at the time of the murder, while Susie had moved up to Lake Oswego, Oregon, a wealthy and predominantly white suburb of Portland. Like I mentioned, the couple was getting ready for their wedding, which was set for some time in September 1996. I didn't really come across anything in the research I read for this case about the dynamics of Susie and Keith's relationship, but it didn't seem like there were any red flags, and it's clear from Keith's later statements that he truly loved Susie and was devastated at the loss of his future wife. Susie's sister Mindy said that Susie was a quote-unquote spark plug, someone with quote magnetic energy that drew everyone to her, end quote. According to Susie's dad, his daughter trusted people to a fault and always sought the good in everyone. Quote, that innocent trust ultimately led to her death. End quote. The rest of this episode is going to cover a lot of trial materials, and we'll dive into the big legal issue in this case that led to a second trial, which just wrapped up a few weeks ago. But let's go back to the day Susie disappeared. August 27th, 1996. On that day, Susie was headed to a male acquaintance's house. This man had promised to make earrings for Susie's wedding. She met him through her circle of friends, which included her roommate. So not a total stranger, but also not a close friend. Susie never came back from this meeting. When she didn't show up for work, Susie's coworker and fiance knew something was wrong. Thirteen days after Susie went missing, her body was found near Shampooey Park. Susie had been bound, gagged, and tortured with a stun gun before being raped and then suffocated. 
Investigators had learned about Susie's acquaintance shortly before her body was found. This man's name was Billy Oatney Jr. He was first interviewed by police on September 2, 1996. At the time, he claimed he hadn't seen Susie for three weeks. Later on that night, a Milwaukee police officer stopped Oatney because the license plate light on his van wasn't working. When the officer ran Oatney's ID, nothing came up. But Oatney wasn't alone in the van. In the passenger seat was Wilford Johnston. And when the officer ran his ID, he found out that Johnston had an outstanding warrant for his arrest for a parole violation. So Johnston was arrested. During this traffic stop, the officer saw a duffel bag that Oatney and Johnson were kind of fiddling around with. The officer asked Oatney for consent to search the bag, which Oatney agreed to. The officer inventoried the items and returned them to Oatney, who was free to go. I'm not really sure why the officer wasn't more concerned about the items found in the duffel bag, seeing as how the bag contained a replica gun, a large double-bladed knife, a pellet gun, a stun gun, duct tape, a lockpick, large scissors, binoculars, and a container of condoms. Oatney and Johnson were literally driving around with a kill kit, and this officer gave zero fucks. While Johnston was in jail for the parole violation, investigators began listening to his phone calls with Oatney. Based on some of the coded language between the two, police began looking more intensely at Oatney. Over the following weeks, investigators interviewed Oatney several times. Oatney had vacated his apartment shortly after Susie's murder, so police got the landlord's consent to search the apartment. Inside, they found blood matching Susie's type on the carpet. They also got a search warrant for Oatney's van and found the murder kit, aka the duffel bag, inside. Oatney was also placed under surveillance. Police also learned that Oatney had served in the Navy, most recently stationed in Japan. And Oatney wasn't an upstanding naval officer. He'd been arrested and convicted for attempted murder and assault after stabbing a fellow Navy man and slitting his throat. Oatney was sentenced to 22 years in prison, but he was released after just 13 years. Oatney then moved to Portland, Oregon. In fact, Oatney was released just months before Susie's murder. The crux of the legal issue in this case centers around one date, October 23, 1996. On that date, Oatney's attorney arranged to have Oatney disclose the information he knew to law enforcement. Before we get into the sequence of events on the 23rd, let me give you some important background info on Oatney's attorney. Before Oatney was arrested, he and his girlfriend at the time hired a private attorney to represent them. When the attorney was initially hired, Oatney denied any knowledge regarding Susie's murder. By his own admission, Oatney's sole goal in hiring this private attorney was to, quote, have the police leave him alone, unquote. By this point, Oatney had repeatedly told his attorney that he wasn't involved in Susie's disappearance and murder. The attorney Oatney had hired had zero experience in practicing criminal law. But regardless, he advised Oatney that he wasn't required to speak to the police. Oatney eventually confessed to his lawyer that he wasn't involved in Susie's murder, but he knew who was. 
Because of Oatney's willingness to cooperate with police, his attorney became the middleman, helping to facilitate Oatney's cooperation with the police. The attorney arranged to have Oatney disclose what information he had to the district attorney and law enforcement on October 23, 1996. During this interview, the DA told Oatney that any information derived from what Oatney told them couldn't ever be used against him. With that promise in mind, Oatney then told police that his friend, Wilford Johnston, was the one who killed Susie at Oatney's apartment while Oatney was out drinking at Wichita Pub until 12 or 12.30 in the morning. Oatney claimed that Johnston had driven Susie's Jeep to her apartment and then stole a bunch of stuff from her place. Oatney went on telling police that on the day after the murder, he helped Johnston dispose of Susie's clothes along with the other things Johnston had stolen from her apartment. Oatney told police he kept quiet because he didn't have an alibi. He also said that he only agreed to help Johnston clean the apartment and dispose of Susie's belongings because he was afraid that he would be implicated in Susie's murder. Police recorded Oatney's statement and asked him for permission to play part of his taped statement for Johnston. Oatney agreed, and later, on October 23rd, investigators went to interview Johnston, who was still in custody for the parole violation. As Oatney had agreed to, police played part of his statement for Johnston. Up until that day, Johnston had refused to speak with police, and he denied ever meeting Susie. Quote, Immediately after detectives played part of Oatney's statement for Johnston, specifically the part where Oatney said Johnston committed the murder on his own, Johnston's face turned beet red and he clenched and shook his fists, end quote. That's when Johnston decided to finally talk to police. He claimed Oatney was actually the one who killed Susie. Johnston said he'd been staying with Oatney at the time of Susie's death. Oatney told Johnston he had a quote-unquote date with Susie and then brought her back to the apartment on the night of August 27th. Johnston claimed he was in another room when he heard Oatney use a stun gun on Susie. Johnston said he found Susie on the living room floor with Oatney holding the stun gun to her neck. For whatever reason, Johnston said he helped Oatney tie Susie up before Oatney then cut off Susie's clothes and raped her. After the assault, Johnston and Oatney forced Susie to give them her bank card. Johnston said he left the apartment to withdraw money from the ATM. And when he got back, he said Oatney was quote-unquote trying unsuccessfully to kill Susie. So, again, for whatever reason, Johnston said he helped Oatney hold a plastic bag over Susie's head until she stopped breathing. Oatney was arrested for the murder of Susie Larson on October 24, 1996. Johnston was given a plea deal after he agreed to testify against Oatney. His testimony mirrored the statements he made to police in October 1996. The first trial was really a battle of Oatney versus Johnston. Oatney even testified at his trial, telling the jury that Johnston was the one who raped Susie, then stole her ATM card. Interestingly, Oatney didn't mention any of this to police when he made his original statement. 
Oatney also claimed that Johnston had tried to strangle Susie with a phone cord before ultimately suffocating her with a plastic bag. The jury ultimately found Oatney guilty of Susie's rape and murder in 1998. They unanimously voted to sentence Oatney to death. At Oatney's sentencing hearing in 1998, Susie's dad, Ted, spoke. He said, quote, I pray, Mr. Oatney, that your remaining days on this earth are short, that they're filled with torment and they're filled with fear. The day you draw your last breath will be the day when society rids itself of a mistake. I shall rejoice when that day comes. The sooner, the better, end quote. Susie's sister, Mindy, also spoke, quote, I hate you for what you did to my sister, and I hate you for what you did to my family. My hope is that you will feel one ounce of the pain and fear Susie felt, and every day to the day of your execution, your life is a living hell, end quote. Oatney spent the next few decades appealing his conviction and death sentence. And then, in 2015, the Oregon Court of Appeals issued a ruling that would change everything. I'm going to be doing a deep dive into the 2015 Court of Appeals case, and there's going to be a lot of legalese that's really important to discuss. But I'm going to do my best to explain everything as we go along, so hopefully it all makes sense. The primary focus of the 2015 appeal was the adequacy of Oatney's trial attorney. Oatney argued his trial attorney didn't quote-unquote fight hard enough to keep Johnston's statements and testimony out of Oatney's first trial. The court reviews decisions made by trial attorneys, as well as their conduct at trial, under a reasonableness standard. The Court of Appeals made it clear that the benefit of hindsight is irrelevant to that decision. So let's go back and take a look at one information Oatney's trial attorney had prior to and leading up to the trial. Oatney's trial attorney knew that his client had a different attorney representing him when he made his initial statement to police back on October 23, 1996. Oatney was promised immunity by the DA in exchange for his statement to law enforcement. Oatney was under the impression and belief that anything he told law enforcement wouldn't be used against him in prosecution. And yet, after talking to Johnston and getting the statement from him, prosecutors turned around and charged Oatney with Susie's murder. By the time of the discovery hearing, one of many preliminary hearings a defendant has to go through on their way to trial, Oatney's trial attorney had the opportunity to read through both the immunity agreement as well as the statements Oatney made in October of 1996. At the discovery hearing, Oatney's trial attorney argued that Johnston's statements couldn't be used against Oatney at his trial. The attorney filed a motion to suppress those statements along with any quote-unquote derivative evidence that came from Johnston's statements. The judge granted the motion to suppress at the discovery hearing, but Oatney's trial attorney never again raised the issue of Johnston's statements and testimony at trial. According to the attorney's affidavit, he didn't believe that Johnston's statements and testimony were covered by the immunity agreement that the DA had offered Oatney. In other words, he thought for some unexplainable reason that Johnston's statements and testimony could be used against Oatney at trial. 
This is despite the fact that he'd also filed a motion to suppress those very statements from being heard at trial. According to the Oregon Court of Appeals, quote, any reasonable trial attorney would have recognized that the immunity agreement was susceptible to argument about whether Johnston's statements and testimony were covered, end quote, under the agreement. The court said this argument was obvious. So obvious, in fact, that Oatney's trial attorney did raise the argument at the pretrial hearing. Reading between the lines of the court's opinion, they couldn't fathom why Oatney's trial attorney wouldn't continue to raise the issue of whether Johnston's statements could actually be used against Oatney. Quote, the failure to raise the issue meant that counsel missed opportunities to have the trial court rule in their client's favor and have the issue decided favorably by the Supreme Court on direct review. The potential benefit was exclusion of evidence critical to the state's case, end quote. So what the heck does all that mean? If you'll recall from earlier in the episode, the only thing I told you about the first trial was that both Johnston and Oatney testified. The prosecution's case essentially was the testimony of Johnston. Quote, Johnston's pretrial statements and testimony were the only direct evidence that Oatney participated in the rape and murder of Susie. End quote. And here's the problem with that. The immunity agreement between the DA and Oatney unambiguously stated that in exchange for Oatney's statement about Susie's murder, the DA wouldn't and couldn't use Oatney's statements against him as well as any physical evidence that was discovered as a result of Oatney's statement and or any information discovered as a result of the follow-up interviews with Oatney. This included statements from Johnston's interview with law enforcement. The Court of Appeals said that the immunity agreement between the DA and Oatney was a broad promise, and under the terms of the agreement, any statement that Johnston made in response to Oatney's initial statement to police, couldn't be used against Oatney. On appeal, the state tried to argue that Johnston's statements were still admissible under both the Inevitable Discovery Doctrine as well as the Independent Source Doctrine. Starting with the Independent Source Doctrine, this simply means that law enforcement slash the DA discovered the evidence at issue from a source that had no relationship or connection to a defendant's statements. But the court didn't buy the state's argument. Quote, The undisputed evidence is that Johnston made his October 23rd statement to the police because of Oatney's statement. End quote. The court said Johnston's statements were made in direct response to Oatney's initial statement, making Johnston's statements derivative evidence. Quote, Essentially, Oatney's argument caused Johnston to implicate Oatney in the rape and murder and then to confess his own participation, end quote. Moving on to the inevitable discovery doctrine, let's talk about what that actually means. So, in order to allow Johnston's statements and testimony under this doctrine, the prosecution would have to prove that they would have eventually got the information in the statements from Johnston, even without Oatney's statement, through their regular investigative efforts. 
But again, the court wasn't convinced that the state would have eventually gotten the information from Johnston that they then could have used against Oatney. The court pointed out that up until October 23, 1996, Johnston had adamantly refused to speak with police. In fact, on October 20th, just three days before Oatney's statement, Police attempted to interview Johnston, but one of the detectives and Johnston got so mad at each other that the interview had to be terminated. Based on the facts available, quote, the state couldn't have shown that Johnston would have made the statement that he did and that that statement would have resulted in making the same subsequent statements and eventually testifying at trial, end quote. Johnston implicated Oatney only after Oatney had talked about Susie's murder, and authorities then used Oatney's statements to prompt Johnston to cooperate and then use that information to convict Oatney, breaking the promise of immunity. All of this led the Oregon Court of Appeals to rule in favor of Oatney, that he had incompetent defense representation and Johnston's statements and testimony shouldn't have been used against Oatney at trial. And so, Oatney's conviction was overturned. Prosecutors immediately brought murder charges against Oatney again. And before you ask, this isn't a violation of double jeopardy. Oatney was convicted in the first trial, and then that conviction was overturned on appeal. So basically, what happens is that that first trial is erased, and it never happened. Oatney was kept in the Washington County Jail between 2015 and his second trial in 2023. In January 2023, Oatney's second trial began. By now, Oatney was 60 years old. The prosecution couldn't use any of Johnston's original statements or testimony in this second trial. Now, I know what you're thinking. I said the only evidence that the DA had against Oatney was Johnston's statements. Well, by the time of the 2023 trial, we did have DNA evidence. Back in 1996, investigators were only able to match the blood found on Oatney's carpet to Susie's blood type. But by 2023, they were able to definitively match that blood on the carpet to Susie. The prosecution also had the murder kit duffel bag that had the knife, gun, stun gun, duct tape, etc. that was found in Oatney's van. The trial lasted for six days, and this time, Oatney didn't take the stand. But he didn't really have to because Johnston's statements weren't admissible. On February 7th, 2023, after four days of deliberation, the jury found Oatney guilty once again of the rape and murder of Susie Larson. Several of Susie's family members spoke at Oatney's second sentencing hearing. Keith Hipley, Susie's fiancé, said Oatney was, quote, in perfectly good shape to go and do it again, and he probably wants to. He has sat there and shown not one ounce of remorse or care about Susie or any of us, and I think that if there was ever a crime that deserved the punishment of life without parole, it's this one, end quote. Susie's cousin Chris also spoke at sentencing. He said he and Susie were more like siblings, and his family had suffered a great loss at the hands of Oatney. Quote, The jury has found Mr. Oatney guilty of the most heinous crime imaginable to the most wonderful person imaginable. 
Make no mistake, Your Honor. You have plenty of evidence. You know in your heart. If this guy gets out, he will do it again. He looks at the world as potential prey. End quote. Oatney was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge said, quote, There are prior criminal justice sanctions that have not deterred the defendant from reoffending. Future efforts to rehabilitate the defendant will not be successful, and there's a need to ensure the security of the public. With that, I will impose life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. End quote. Oatney's attorney says he plans to appeal Oatney's conviction and sentence. And as for Johnston, he pled guilty to aggravated murder and he was sentenced to life without parole. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.